we've come to the scene of the action, and that is the Martello Tower in Sandy Cove, and we're standing on top in the bright morning air, I'm glad to say. The sun is shining, and if we look over the, the parapet, I think it's what is referred to in the opening of Ulysses, we can see the pier of Kingstown, the harbour of Kingstown, where Mulligan sees the mail boat clearing the harbour. To the north, we can see Hoth sitting there in the sunlight with the Bailey Lighthouse at the end. And then if we look the other way down the coast, we don't see Bray Head, but we do see the Muglins, which is a That's a his rocky, little island. This little rocky outcrop. And then further to the right, as it were, we see Dorky Hill with the telegraph boat, and then we see Kalini with the obelisk on top of it. And uh, much has changed, <coughs> of course. Oh yes, but there's still the rosary of hills around the city, but the building and all the rest has changed enormously, and uh, we're not looking at what Mulligan or Stephen Dedalus looked at on that fateful morning. So what happens at the beginning of Ulysses? We see Buck Mulligan dressed in a yellow dressing gown, and he comes from the stairhead, which is behind us. We are standing on a circular platform, as it were, on top of the tower, and behind us is the opening of a stairhead. A very narrow stairhead. Someone said there mustn't have been any fat soldiers in the garrison. They couldn't have got up. Anyway... He is stately and plump, so he got up, and he's carrying a shaving bowl on which there's a mirror and uh, a razor. And he recites the opening of the Tridentine Mass, Intro Ibo Adeltari Dei. He calls to someone called Kinch to come up and join him, and a sleepy Stephen Dedalus comes forward, rather reluctantly, and Mulligan whistles, and... Through the mild morning air, two whistles answer him. It's never explained in the book, but these are the whistles of the mail boat, which is going to leave the harbour in what was then Kingstown, now gone back to its original name of Dunleary. Stately, plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown, ungirdled, was sustained gently behind him by the mild morning air. He held the bowl aloft and intoned, Halted, he peered down the dark winding stairs and called up coarsely, Come up, Kinch! Come up, you fearful Jesuit! Solemnly he came forward and mounted the round gun rest. He faced about and blessed gravely thrice the tower, the surrounding country and the awaking mountains. Then, catching sight of Stephen Dedalus, he bent towards him and made rapid crosses in the air gurgling in his throat and shaking his head. Stephen Dedalus, displeased and sleepy, leaned his arms on the top of the staircase and looked coldly at the shaking, gurgling face that blessed him, equine in its length, and at the light, untonsured hair, grained and hued like pale oak. Mulligan is quite friendly towards Stephen, and uh, he asked him to come to Athens with him, if he can get twenty quid from his aunt, that is Mulligan's aunt. And while he's shaving, Stephen asks, how long will Haynes stay in the tower? It seems that Haynes dreamt the night before of a black panther that he was shooting, and it frightened the life out of Stephen, and Stephen said, if he stays, I'm off. Mulligan gets Stephen's handkerchief to wipe his razor and immediately sees a new colour, snot green. And then he says that it's his aunt, Mulligan's aunt, thinks that Stephen killed his mother. 
he says he'd give Stephen new trousers, his, his cast-off trousers, they're grey, and Stephen says he can't wear them if they're grey. It seems he's in mourning. Uh, Mulligan shows him the mirror, which he pinched from the skivvy's room. That's the servant at home who would have a room. And Stephen very wittily says, a cracked-looking glass of a servant is a symbol of Irish art. We admire Stephen for this, but then we realise that he's just changing wild a little bit. Mulligan takes his arm to walk around this circular thing here, which is a gun rest, I take it. Uh, Mulligan knows he has something against them, and he asks him what it is, and it turns out that once Stephen was in his house, and his aunt asked him who was there, and he says, only Stephen. Mulligan had said, it's only Stephen whose mother is beastly dead. Mulligan says, well, okay, so I said it. I didn't mean any offence to your mother. And Stephen says, it isn't the offence to my mother, it's the offence to me. And quite rightly, Mulligan turns around and says, he's an impossible person. Anyway, roughly about that stage, Mulligan's called down by Haynes, who's the, the fellow who had had the, the dream. While he's going, he tells Stephen to give up his moody brooding. Stephen is standing there, and suddenly a cloud covers the thing, and he remembers his mother's death, and he sees the vomit that she took up and all the rest. But eventually he goes down, and he said in the conversation he's going to be paid. It seems he works in a school, and Mulligan said, yes, we'll have a great booze-up about it. And then they have breakfast, and the milk woman comes. We're more or less looking at it through the eyes of Stephen. Mulligan talks about tuberculosis, the goodness of milk, and if more people drank it, more healthy. Stephen sees that the milk woman is in awe of Mulligan because he's a medical student. And then Haynes speaks Irish. How often have we heard in Ireland the reaction of the milkwoman, exactly the same. I thought it was Irish, she said, be the sound of it. Are you from West, sir? I am an Englishman, Haynes answered. He's English, Buck Mulligan said, and he thinks we ought to speak Irish in Ireland. Sure we ought to, the old woman said. And I'm ashamed I don't speak the language myself. I'm told it's a grand language, be them that knows. She has a bill for the week's milk, two shillings and two pence, and Mulligan pays her two shillings and says he's or the rest. Then they decided to go out, and Haynes says he wants to make a collection of sayings of Stephen. Stephen says, will he get any money out of it? And Haynes says, he's sure he doesn't know. Anyway, Stephen takes up his Latin Quarter hat and goes out, and walking down the path, Mulligan's in front of them, Haynes and Stephen are together, and Haynes speaks about the tower and Hamlet and the rest. Elsinore and being on the sea's edge and Mulligan said you have to hear Stephen on Hamlet he works out by algebra that Hamlet's grandson is Shakespeare's grandfather and he himself is the ghost of his own father which tells us nothing really about Stephen's theory of Hamlet and then Mulligan recites the ballad of the joking Jesus which typically Haynes being a an English Protestant finds, and which it is, blasphemous. And he says he suppose he shouldn't laugh. And Stephen said, well, we hear it three times a day after meals, so he's used to it. Stephen has the key, and he thinks uh, he uh, should keep the key, although he knows Mulligan wants the key from him. And he says a strange thing. He said, I paid the rent. He says to Haynes that he's the servant of two masters, the Imperial British States and the Holy Roman Catholic Church, and another one who wants him for odd jobs, which I presume is Ireland. 
the Englishman, who's uh, Haynes, who's well disposed, still won't take the blame for anything. And he says, oh, well, I'm not surprised that you think that way. It seems history is to blame. And then he says he doesn't want his country to fall into the hands of German Jews. And that's the problem these days. So here he is, affluent, well-educated. He's at Oxford, and yet he's anti-Semitic. They passed by two men waiting for a body of a man who drowned nine days ago when Mulligan is preparing to go into aid. He speaks to someone and gets news of someone called Bannon, who's a student down in Mullingar and seems to have got a new girlfriend who works in a photographer's shop. As Stephen goes to go, as he predicted, Mulligan asks him for the key and to rub in salt into sore wounds. He also asks for tuppence for a pint. And as Stephen walks up the hill away from the bathing place, he looks back and sees Mulligan swimming out like a seal and calls him a usurper. A voice, sweet-toned and sustained, called to him from the sea. Turning the curve, he waved his hand. It called again. A sleek, brown head, a seal's, far out on the water, round. Usurper. We're here standing on this tower, and we know this is where the knoll begins. It turns out we're in Sandy Cove, but the word Sandy Cove only comes up at breakfast. Uh, Somebody insists on pure Sandy Cove milk, which you could probably get outside of it too. What makes readers a bit afraid is, as I said, that Joyce doesn't guide them by the hand. This is a change in narrative procedure. He doesn't explain things that we think we might have... uh, detailed. For example, it's not easy to know what the time is. We know it's morning. There's morning air there. I mention this because everybody nowadays knows, and in this particular year cannot help hearing it, that this is a certain day in June 1904. But this is not something that the book tells you right away. This is something that will come out and is put together. Here it, here it is now set. Joyce also has something new. We are basically witnessing these three young men. Very soon, the point of view is narrowed down to Stephen's view, what Stephen hears, and we also are getting slowly into Stephen's mind. And that was something in this way new, though it wasn't entirely new, there had been predecessors, and it had to be given a name. The name was Interior Monologue or Stream of Consciousness, and it's not even easy to say when it occurs first. I think the first clear instant is when Stephen looks into the cracked looking glass and then sees himself and in a way talks to himself. Stephen bent forward and peered at the mirror held out to him, cleft by a crooked crack, hair on end. As he and others see me, who chose this face for me, this dog's body to rid of vermin? It asks me too. One of the difficulties that Joyce does not underline what is important. We get all kinds of trivia. We get the shaving bowl, the brush, we get small things, and we don't know what is worth remembering. But the point is uh, to wait, and things then do come together more and more. And also, we're thrown into the middle of it with the three characters there. But, of course, one of them, if you've read a portrait of the artist, 
you've already met him, uh, Stephen, and you've left him as he's preparing to go out to become an artist and full of great things. We know that he has been in, in Paris because we hear of a Latin Quarter hat, but we don't know how long he was there, how long he's back, or what happened to him in the meantime. And it is only, as you say, the small pieces of information, like a jigsaw that we have to take out and put together, and then we see. Well, and it's often very tentative. We, uh, it we is, can yes, be modified yeah. from the very beginning. How the audience is divided into various parts. You in Ireland or in Dublin are privileged. At least you know some of the cities. It's different from a hundred years ago. Also, um, there are those who have read the portrait of the artist and would know Stephen Dedalus and his whole development, and others who have not. There are also a few nowadays who would know what the Latin is. Others don't. So the book speaks differently to different readers, and that we have to take on trust. And unfortunately, there have been a lot of commentaries on the book, and these probably have filtered down into different ways. I mean, it's commonly assumed that Stephen is a persona of Joyce and that Mulligan is a persona of Oliver Gogarty and that Haynes is based on someone called Shevinix Trench. Of course, we do know that Joyce Gogarty and Shevinix French did live in the tower, and William Bolfin in Rambles and Aaron gives a picture of them, and although he doesn't name them, they're obviously the people we're reading about in Ulysses. But this is misleading, really, because you can carry this too far. Today, with a little knowledge, people often equate the two and then actually take Ulysses as being a record of a period of Joyce's life, which is totally wrong. There is a kind of relation, a kind of umbilical cord from the fictional Stephen Dedalus to the real author James Joyce, which we can't get out of the way. And so we're always tempted to step mm. outside the book and go to the reality mm. out of which the book arose. We always fall into this mm. trap. But it's totally immaterial whether there was a, a Gogarty or not. But as a matter of fact, Joyce did take a lot, even productions versus that Gogarty had. So Joyce was a great user of pre-existing material, mm -hmm. including later on Shakespeare and all of that. The other thing is that Joyce doesn't make his principal character very sympathetic. The really sympathetic character in this, to me anyway, is Mulligan. He's funny, he's outgoing, He's well disposed to Stephen, at least he appears to be well disposed to Stephen. He's only using Stephen insofar as he has brought over his friend Haynes from Oxford to show him Ireland, as it were. Stephen seems to be there to entertain him rather than anything else. Yet, it seems, who paid the rent? So that is yeah. one of the big questions, yeah. I think. Stephen is not at his entertaining best this morning. He's obviously no, he's in not. a bad mood, no. as against the exuberance of mm. Buck Mulligan. Buck Mulligan's gay voice went on. My name is absurd too. Malachy Mulligan. Two dactyls. But it has a Hellenic ring, hasn't it? Tripping and sunny like the Buck himself. We must go to Athens. Will you come if I can get the aunt to fork out twenty quid? He laid the brush aside and, laughing with delight, cried, Will he come? Ha! Ah, the Jejun Jesuit! Ceasing, he began to shave with care. Tell me, Mulligan, Stephen said quietly. Yes, my love. How long is Haynes going to stay in this tower? Buck Mulligan showed a shaven cheek over his right shoulder. God, isn't he dreadful, he said frankly. A ponderous Saxon. He thinks you're not a gentleman. God, these bloody English. Bursting with money and indigestion because he comes from Oxford. You know, Dedalus, you have the real Oxford manner. He can't make you out. 
Oh, my name for you is the best. Kinch, the knife blade. He shaved warily over his chin. He was raving all night about a black panther, Stephen said. Where is his gun case? A woeful lunatic, Mulligan said. Were you in a funk? I was, Stephen said with energy and growing fear. Out here in the dark with a man I don't know, raving and moaning to himself about shooting a black panther. You saved men from drowning. I'm not a hero, however. If he stays on here, I am off. Now you said about uh, you'd prefer Mulligan uh, and Stephen is not very likable. I think this is very subjective. We respond to them mm. as we would to people in real life. In Joyce much more than in other fiction. He turned abruptly, his great searching eyes, from the sea to Stephen's face. The aunt thinks you killed your mother, he said. That's why she won't let me have anything to do with you. Someone killed her, Stephen said gloomily. You could have knelt down, damn it, Kinch, when your dying mother asked you, Doc Mulligan said. I'm hyperborean as much as you. But to think of your mother begging you with her last breath to kneel down and pray for her, and you refused. There's something sinister in you. Something is really underscored, and that is the death of the mother. It's rubbed in. Mulligan talks about it. Stephen is resentful. Stephen is in exaggerated mourning to the point of refusing to wear grey second-hand trousers. And he remembers a dream which is repeated. And so that is clearly something that has to be mentioned. Stephen's mother died some time ago and he is uh, yeah he feels guilty about it guilty because on her deathbed she had her family probably around her and they prayed and Stephen refused to pray uh, continuing his uh, uh, liberation from the church or whatever it was at heavy cost to hurt his mother and this now is uh, experienced as guilt well haven't you got a, a certain amount of sympathy with Mulligan's attitude he refuses his dying mother's wish, mm -hmm. and he won't wear grey yep. trousers. I mean, he is an impossible person. Yeah, yeah. I would no, no. Like Mulligan says, "Why couldn't you play or basically go through the motions, mm. uh, swallow your pride, mm. and and mm. yeah, that would have that's been that's what a, a normal a more, person um, would have done." A more human. Well, not to forget, however, that Mulligan does this all the time. Mm. He always play acts. Yes, he, he does. always plays a kind of role. Mm. In fact, it's quite interesting that the scene, which we, we now see as a round thing, is actually a little bit like a stage. And uh, there's even Mulligan, a platform on platform, it. <laughs> and Mulligan gets into all kinds of roles a priest, a uh, military commander. Uh, he impersonates Mother Grogan, mm. a woman, and he at one point he sighs tragically. Mm. So he is really play acting and, uh, and playing roles, which also foreshadows that in this book and in life we all play roles. Buck Mulligan at once put on a blithe, broadly smiling face. He looked at them, his well-shaped mouth open happily, his eyes, from which he had suddenly withdrawn all shrewd sense, blinking with mad gaiety. He moved a doll's head to and fro, the brims of his Panama hat quivering, and began to chant in a quiet, happy, foolish voice. I'm the queerest young fellow that ever you heard. My mother's a Jew and my father's a bird. With Joseph the joiner I cannot agree, so here's two disciples and Calvary. What will give uh, novices pause is also a very strong uh, colouring of religion, parody or, 
of the Mass, which is displaced and blasphemous, mm. the ballad of joking Jesus, which takes a kind mm. of funny view mm. of uh, the Holy Family. Uh, Stephen thinks of um, all kinds of heretics mm -hmm. who deviated from the orthodox way, and Buck Mulligan, who is always into onto some kind of routine when he slaps down the eggs. He said in Latin, eh, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So there's a lot of that there, and it already shows that Joyce, in a way, saturates this chapter, and it will be later on, with one particular motive. Here it's religion. Goodbye, now goodbye, write down all I said, and tell Tom, Dick, and Harry I rose from the dead. What's bred in the bone cannot fail me to fly, and all of it's breezy. Goodbye, now goodbye. It's interesting to look at the three characters. Haynes, who seems to be best off of the lot of them, doesn't produce any money, and when the milkwoman asks for a bill, he unashamedly says to Mulligan, pay up and be pleasant about it, or something like that. Mulligan then produces the two shillings and says he hasn't any more, and he now owes the money to the milkwoman, who can ill afford it. I mean, she is poverty-stricken by the sound of her. And then Stephen says he's going to be paid in school in a school in which he's working. Mulligan assumes he's going to get four pounds, and he immediately says, lend me one. And Stephen says, well, if you want it, yeah. And uh, Mulligan also says, we're going to have a, a magnificent booze-up or something like that. This is the offhand attitude to money, and I think people can have only an, an offhand attitude to money like that when they have none. Stephen obviously, had, well, he had tuppence in his pocket because he gives it to, to Mulligan for the pint at the end of the chapter. But Mulligan now says he's skint, and, of course, typical, the occupying power, Haynes <laughs> doesn't put his hand in his pocket. So there's a complicated thing about money, which was typical of the time, which uh, I think a lot of young people today can't appreciate, that young people then... Even, even into the university days, had no, no money and lived really by their wits. And, yeah. and Joyce knew what it was <coughs> to have no money and he mm. was good at getting it. Yeah. Mm. No, uh, but the book really keeps track of expenses and money and debts mm. and all of that, especially when you don't have it. Uh, there's even a, a book has been written on the economy of... Yeah, and it's a quite good book. It's a very useful uh, book because it, it goes right through. And uh, we are aware of the money we have and don't have. Ilia tarutilantium, Toma chocum dead, Ubilantium te virginum. Another one we just have, we have Latin, we have quite a number of foreign languages, really in short bits, a mm. bit of French, and we have one, Albert, that may be troublesome when Stephen thinks about washing, or not washing, he hasn't, mm. he refuses to do it. Uh, there's a short phrase of something we can't do with agonbite of inwit, which is really a, an erratic block. Again, one could read over it, but it so happens this is a Middle English form, a literal translation of remorse of conscience, and Stephen feels remorse in his conscience, and so this occurs in a form that is distant. It's not as immediate as the English, modern English would be. And again, this is something, if you happen to know or write or look it up, or just go ahead. Well, the other thing, too, is not certainly not essential, is the Hamlet theme that goes through the, the tower. Mm -hmm. Stephen is obviously a Hamlet-like mm -hmm. figure. Haynes specifically brings it up, so it's all there. 
But I suppose the real theme in it is the Homeric element in it, which I touched on in my summary by saying the last thing that Stephen says is, or thinks is usurper. Obviously, uh, the book is entitled Ulysses, and that takes us to Homer's uh, epic, basically the beginning of Western literature for practical purposes. Uh, so it's always went back to beginnings. And I've always insisted that the term circulated very early uh, of Homeric parallels is not a very convenient one because so many things are not at all parallel. For example, if Telemachus is in fact Stephen Daedalus, it'll turn out that's the case, but how could we know? He is the son of Penelope, who is very much in the foreground in Erga, but we know Stephen's mother has died, and so there are hardly ever exact geometrical relations. I think that has to be said. It doesn't help us very much in, in this case. Not yet. We are being rather unfair in referring to this Telemachus episode, because Joyce, although he used it when he was writing it for his own yeah. purposes, he put the, that heading, mm-hmm. in none of the uh, editions that were published, yeah, no. it was never used no. in any of the no. editions at all. No. Don't forget, if you take up a book that's called Ulysses and you turn the page and you have Telemachus as another title, this would overemphasize a direction, mm-hmm. which is by no means the only direction, it's a mm-hmm. possible one. But Joyce used these labels, and it will turn out we'll also use them because they're very convenient. Mm. So we can distinguish the chapters 18 as it happens, and we will also see that these chapters do have their individuality so that they almost deserve to be named. One aspect is, and it, anyway, it's already been touched upon, it's in a way an old world at the end of a long cultural tradition, which is, is here. There are Homeric shadows floating around. Shakespeare is mentioned, um, Swinburne. Uh, these young people have them at their fingertips and, and can quote them. The mm. Mars is there and all of that. So there's a lot to play with, and they play a lot with the tradition. Now, my <coughs> point was simply that, say, Yeats and Shakespeare and Homer and the music mm. hall uh, are all come together here and are, are used, and so mm. there's a lot of pre-existing material is being recirculated. Mm. Uh, as the title indicates, and in this concentration, probably more than in previous novels. Mm. Stephen and uh, Mulligan, when they quote, automatically assume that the other will get the reference, and they do. Or else it's an opportunity to show off. Yes, I mean, when, yes. when, uh, when Buck Mulligan says, oh, the Greeks, you must read them in the original, he's obviously showing off, I mm. know Greek and you don't. Mm. Perhaps one word on, on yeah. Homer here in, in this respect. For me, it is another point of reference. You, Jerry, from the very beginning, probably knew about the Martello Tower, and you could Mm. locate that right away. You're in a small minority, naturally, because there are people all in the world who do not have this. Dublin places mean nothing to them, Mm. but many readers would have known the Odyssey, which is a kind of global heritage that you can refer to. So either you hold on to something like Homer and Shakespeare, or else to the locality, and both are in a way there. Myth and Dublin reality come together so much so, the Dublin, that people do come to Dublin, as I did, in order to see the reality of the fiction that fascinated.